Hi, everyone. Welcome to Waste 360's Nothing Wasted podcast. On every episode, we invite the most interesting people in waste, recycling, and organics to sit down with us and chat candidly about their thoughts, their work, this unique industry, and so much more. So thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. We wanted to bring you another remarkable session straight from Waste Expo. Give a listen to this one. It's called Post-China and the Current Status of Recycling. From changing standards and new markets to understanding and communicating the economics of recycling, this impressive lineup of speakers has much to share with you. So go ahead and enjoy their insights as we all work through the realities of recycling today. Uh, my name is Ben Harvey, and I am the president of E.L. Harvey & Sons. I am also the chair of the National Waste and Recycling Association. And uh, welcome to this session on post-China and the current status of recycling. Our first speaker today is going to be Catherine Sando. And Katie, <clears throat> excuse me, Katie is responsible for brand strategy, communications, PR, capital deployment, and innovation at LCSWMA. Now, what does all that mean? I'll give you a hint later. All right, so she's going to tell us later. In this role, she directs the successful implementation of LCSWMA's capital projects and strategic initiatives, as well, well as cultivating a strong community focus and proactive public engagement philosophy within the organization. She also leads all marketing, public education, and outreach activities in support of LCSWMA's community-focused philosophy. Katie holds a BS in speech communications and public relations from Millersville University, as well as an MA in communications and EDD in adult education, both from Penn State University. Prior to this role, she served as Deputy Chief of Community Relations and before that, Communications Manager for LCSWMA since her start in 2011. And after Katie gets done with her presentation, Mr. Brian Liu, and uh, Mr. Brian Liu was born in a remote village in Sichuan province of China. He had a taste for chaos of the great cultural revolution as a child, then the student movements as a college student. Mr. Liu studied English language education at Southwest University in Chongqing. He was offered a job as a junior faculty member with the university after graduation with honors. Three years later, following his passion, Mr. Liu joined the flood of young people in Shenzhen, where he worked as a foreign trade facilitator at U.S. China Business Center, an extension of the U.S. Foreign Commercial Services, led by the U.S. Commercial Council under the Consulate General Zhang Zhu. Upon coming to the U.S. as an expatriate for the UCBC, Mr. Liu enrolled in the MBA program with the School of Business, California State University, Los Angeles. While working full-time, he joined Ralston International, which was a big paper buyer, as a purchasing manager. Ralston International was the exclusive agent for Lee and Man Paper, a major container board mill group in Asia. Recently, Ralston International uh, started a new entity called Wind Fiber US Inc. And, and Mr. Liu assumed the role as the exclusive buying agent for the same firm. Mr. I'm sorry, Mr. Liu is the CEO of Wind Fiber US. And last, we have a representative from EPA, and um, Ms. Cheryl Coleman is the Director of the Resource Conservation and Sustainability Division within the Office of Resource Conservation and Recovery at the US EPA. The Resource Conservation and Sustainability Division is responsible for promoting the reduction, reuse, recovery, recycling of municipal, industrial, and extractive waste and the long-term sustainable management of these materials, establishing collaborative partnerships with businesses and state, territorial, and local governments, and developing policy, technical guidance, tools, and public information on sustainable materials management. Ms. Coleman is a graduate of Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. She did further graduate work at Rutgers University, Piscataway, New Jersey, and earned a master's degree in biology from the University of South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. Ms. Coleman has over 30 years of experience with materials and waste management. She came to the US EPA headquarters from the South Carolina Department of Health and Environment Control, where she was the Director of Compliance and Enforcement for Waste Programs and Mining. Additionally, she served in several leadership capacities for the Association of State Territorial Solid Waste Management Officials. So th that is the bios on our speakers today. Now, we're going to try to do this in a, in, a, in, a, uh, in a way that makes sense. We're going to talk, we're going to start talking about 
the municipal and how municipal, <laughs> municipalities have dealt with the China situation and, and how they've maybe renegotiated, renegotiated some of the contracts that they've been working on. And then Mr. Liu is gonna talk about what he sees as an exporter of fiber into China and what the impact on that has been to, and, and what the future might, <laughs> I think everybody wants to know what the future holds. But uh, Mr. Liu is gonna talk about that and what he sees happening in, in the future. And then uh, we're gonna hear from uh, Cheryl, Ms. Coleman, and she's gonna talk about maybe what some of the things that are happening up on the federal level that might alleviate or help us or ease some of the tensions and some of the pain that we as processors have gone through over the last two years. Well, thanks everyone for taking your lunch hour to talk about post-China. And I appreciate the introduction, Ben, thank you. As you mentioned, my name is Katie Sando, and the LCSWMA acronym that Ben spoke about actually stands for the Lancaster County Solid Waste Management Authority. But that is a mouthful, so we typically say LICSWAMA, and that's the um, acronym that you see up there. And to talk about post-China, I was asked to share a perspective from the municipal side, from the community side, of some of the things that we did to, in response to the situation. And particularly my takeaways that I want you to walk away with today um, is from the private se sector perspective, what are some of the important things of how we can work together to address this across the country? Every community is going to look a little bit different. Your requirements and situations are going to be different. But if one of the big lessons learned that you take away from this is it's really, um, we really need the collaboration and partnership between the public and private sectors in order to um, ensure that that recycling remains sustainable for the long term. So a couple of things just to give you context when I talk about our community, what that means. So for Lixwama, again, the Lancaster County Solid Waste Management Authority, there's four things to remember or at least to put in context for you. The first one is that we're a regional public authority. We serve two counties in South Central Pennsylvania. To orient you from a geographical perspective, we're about 30 to 45 minutes west of Philadelphia, so that gives you some orientation. Our population size is around 850,000 residents, so that gives you some size and scope. Um, Lixwama doesn't do any curbside collection of refuse or recycling. That's all done by private commercial haulers. Those are our customers. Once that is, once that collection of refuse and recycling occurs, it's brought to Lixwama to manage through our integrated system, which is inclusive of four facilities. We have a centrally located transfer station. We have two waste to energy facilities, one in each county that burn the majority of the MSW. And then we have a landfill, and that is primarily for construction demolition waste, residual or manufacturing waste, and then the ash residue from the two waste to energy facilities. So through the entire system between the two counties, we manage over 1 million tons of waste annually. So that just gives you some size and scope. We have around 115 employees. We contract with Covanta to operate the two waste energy facilities. From a revenue perspective, a monetary perspective, we are anywhere between a 90 to $95 million a year in annual revenues. And about 75% of that, between 70 to 75% of that comes from tipping fees. And the other 15 to 20% comes from renewable energy projects. We have six different sources of green energy for which we um, bring in revenue. And then the remainder is um, some other small investments, metal sales, and other smaller projects. Our relationship to the two counties, so we don't do any curbside collection once it's brought to us, but our, we support municipalities in their administration of their contracts. So Lancaster County has 60 different municipalities. Dauphin County has 20 to 25. So there's a lot of municipalities to work with. All of the programs are through local ordinances and they're enforced through there. So we support municipalities in helping to write those ordinances, do their collection contracts that go out to public bid. So we provide the overarching governance, the authority, if you will, on waste and recycling in those two counties. When it comes to recycling in Lancaster County, just to give you again some size and scope, the pie chart on the right just shows you out of the breakdown of the tons how much is recycled. That recycling number is inclusive of commercial, institutional, and um, commercial sources. So that's all inclusive. Um, last year, around 
So out of the million ton system in one county in Lancaster County, it was around 700,000 tons of waste. 255,000 tons of that is recycling. And again, that's from those multiple sources. Out of that 255,000 tons, around 45,000 is single stream. And we did an audit last October. We hired a consulting firm to come in and actually do an audit of the single stream that comes in to our transfer station. And we're looking at around a 20 to 20, 25 to 30% contamination rate. So our target, as we were looking to address this issue, was to reduce contamination. I'd be really excited if we could reduce it to 10 to 15%. So from a tonnage volume perspective, we're not talking about a huge amount. What we're talking about in our community, the big shift was philosophical in how people are thinking. When it comes to actually processing the recyclables, that 45,000 tons actually goes in the next county over. Lixwama contracts with a MRF that is owned by a smaller um, private um, hauling um, commercial company called Penn Waste. They provide curbside collection as well as they own and operate our region's MRF. So this particular MRF services five counties in the surrounding area. So that gives you an idea um, from a volume perspective and we don't actually process the recycles, we contract out. So one of the things that when I talk in the community that I like to tell people is China was not the crisis. When China, with the national sword policy, um, went into effect, what that did, um, and what I tell people, is that it illuminated a crisis that already existed, and that was the fact that Quite frankly, most people don't know how to recycle. Um, they were doing what they thought was right for a long time, and what we actually ended up with was a large contaminated waste stream. So for a public authority, as we look to address this issue, from a leadership perspective, I serve on the executive team, and we had some plenty of roundtable discussions when the effects started to trickle across. Um, I would say by the time it really hit the East Coast in our area, the effects of China's national sword policy um, really started, we started to see the impact around March or April of 2018. And so we sat around and said, well, there's some, we can either do nothing and wait for things to shake out, but that's not our philosophy, that's not our MO. We are a leader in our community, and we pride ourselves of being a leader in the public sector in our industry, and we, we need to do something and we need to react. And we knew that things weren't going to fix themselves on their own. No matter what shook out with the market, we, we saw that one of the primary issues to address was contamination in, in the bin. So even if other markets opened up, eventually they were going to move to the same standards or um, we were going to have to find new markets and they're going to look for clean material. So when we look to address contamination, my team, we did a lot of research. We talked to our MRF partner. We talked to our comparables across the country. We did quite a bit of research. And what it came down to is, as I said before, people don't know how to recycle. They are just inherently confused, but yet they are convinced that there is a particular way. So we spent, how do we address this issue? This is a huge thing to tackle. This is behavioral change. People have been trying to figure this out for years. So how do we get our community um, to react and to begin to respond and recycle appropriately. So we came down with the three parts, what we call solution. We haven't fixed the issue yet, we're still in the midst of this, but we saw that there's gonna be three ways that we can address the situation. The first one is to simplify the recycling process. We found that people were just confused. No matter where they went, um, there were different guidelines, they worked in, you know, with 60 different municipalities in Lancaster County, that you can imagine that could get a little confusing, so so I work in one area, I moved in from another area, I have a friend in another state, and everyone does it a little bit differently. You're in a public space, they do it differently. You're at a business, they ask for something else. And so um, I believe countrywide, we have reinforced the good behavior that you're a good citizen if you recycle. And I can't tell you how many times people say to me, I'm so proud, I put more in my recycling bin than I do in my trash. And I shock them and say, well, then you're doing it wrong. And of course, you know, the, the oh my gosh, how could you be that blunt to me? 
but it gets their attention, right? And so we realize we need to simplify it for people. Folks are hit with messages, millions of messages every single week coming at them. And when you when they are doing a split second behavioral decision, they're done with something and they need to put it in one of two places, you need to make it simple for people. And we also said, I mean, now we're in the baseball season and um, when a pitcher is having, to use a metaphor, when pitchers are having difficulty in a game and that game is done and this becomes a repetitive process, what do their coaches do? Their coaches say, we're going to go back to the fundamentals. We're going to go back to the basics so that you can learn again to pitch correctly and then we'll add some additional flavor into it. That was our approach with recycling. Let's go back to the basics of the four, what we identified in talking with our more four material types that have a, from a volume perspective, have the most impact environmentally. Economically, there's a strong domestic market for it, and even if there's international market, there's good flow for that. And so let's make it simple for people. We also said we need to standardize the message. We need to partner with our commercial, commercial, commercial hauling customers, our municipalities, our educational institutions, our businesses. Everyone needs to be saying the same thing. We need to have the same guidelines across the county, across the two counties that we service, so that no matter where people go, they understand what we call the big four. And we also move to... Um, what I look at behaviorally, when you reach people at their most primal level, you need to communicate to them. It seems really rudimentary. You need to communicate to them in shapes and colors and symbols. You start using a lot of words and language. It's not that people aren't intelligent to figure it out. They just don't have time. right? So when we talk about the big four, we're using very simple language and we're using shapes and terms and, and colors and, and, and images. And if you don't think... Or if you think that that might be too rudimentary, I challenge you to look at our traffic transportation system across the country. Inevitably, no matter where you go, you approach, you approach an intersection and you know what one of three colors means. You know what to do at red, yellow, and green. And while everyone looks a little bit different, you know, the traffic lights look a little bit different, generally it's the same shape. You understand what that means. That's how you're moving people to act at, the, at, at its most simplistic level. And then finally, it seems very obvious to say we need to publicize. Um, we take responsibility, and I think industry-wide, but particularly like Swama takes responsibility. We didn't do a good job of helping people understand what recycling is and educating them about the entire process. Most people think of recycling as what I'm calling material sortation, putting stuff in the bin. We did not do a good job really closing the loop and talking with them about what recycling processors do, the challenges that they face, and that ultimately what recycling means is taking a product and turning it into something new. If that doesn't exist, then something isn't recyclable. And that, again, is challenging people's philosophic beliefs. So we launched a campaign called Recycle Right Lancaster. And let me see if I can get this to play should be a video. So this is just an example of uh, a large PSA campaign. Some of the visuals, just to give you a flavor of some of the things that we were um, showing and telling people. So challenging people that, first of all, recycling isn't what you think. The numbers don't mean what they do. So when you're confused and how do you know what to throw, you just need to focus on the big four. Four basic items, your corrugated cardboard, which that is a challenge in and of itself to try and explain to people what corrugated means. Metal food and beverage cans is the second, glass bottles and jars, and then plastic bottles and jugs with a neck. And very simply, giving them simple directions on what to do with it. Um, and so we developed a whole series of resources and that landing page, if you want to look at it for later on, all the information on there is free. Mimic away. I would love for the message to spread. It's called RecycleRightLancaster.org. But one of the things that, two things that I want to focus on and really emphasize is how important it is for communities, whether you're here um, from a municipal perspective or um, from commercial hauling or a MRF, that we collaborate together. So because, um, and, and I don't think it would have been effective anyways, but Lixwama doesn't have the authority, if you will, to say, here are the guidelines that everyone must follow and do enforcement. That is done from at the municipal level. But it's also important that we collaborate with our commercial haulers and our MRF. So one of the first things that we did when we were looking to overhaul this program is to actually meet with key leadership from the recycling processor that we work with. We did 
didn't want to make a decision that was then going to negatively impact or cause more challenge for our MRF partner. So we sat down to say, what are you seeing? What are your challenges financially? What are your challenges from market response perspective, from a processing perspective? Tell us what, if you had the ideal situation, what would you change? And so that was really important to get a, an understanding from them so that what we're rolling out aligns with their services and their equipment and what they can offer and what they can process. We also changed to a monthly market-based arrangement with the MRF. So previously, we had an annual contract where we, like Swama, were getting paid $4 per ton for the materials that we were sending to the MRF. Well, that changed, and it ended up a blended rate at the time when we launched this. It was we were being charged $40 per ton. And we understood that it wasn't sustainable from a MRF perspective to move to an annualized contract or to keep with that because who knew that we were in such flux. And the reality is people have gotten used to recycling being free. For far too long, they think that there is no cost to it. And one of the important parts, in, on, in addition to simplifying the process and standardizing it, was connecting people to the cost of recycling, that this is so valuable to our community into the country, but realize it's not free. And understanding the economics of it plays an importance in people's understanding. But to temper that to our um, customers and our municipalities, so while we, Lixwama, are being charged a monthly market-based rate, so that fluctuates based on the blended commodities rate, we absorb some of that and we charge our customers, we adjust that on a quarterly basis. So a lot of our customers are the municipalities who the trash is coming in and they are charged and then they pass that on to the residents. So from a budgeting perspective, they need to have some consistency and some standardization. So we adjust our rate then on a quarterly basis. So we eat it some months, if you will. And the other thing is partnering with our MRF from a marketing and messaging standpoint. I think too often I see there's a message maybe coming from a MRF or a company or from a hauler or from a community, and you really need to be aligned into what you're telling people. If they're getting conflicting messages or talking about things different way, they're going to default to the behavior that is most comfortable to them, which is wishful recycling, I'm going to put it all in the bin. If I'm not sure and, I, and people are telling me different things, I'm going to do what makes me feel good. So partnering um, with our MRF was an important part of success for this campaign. Also cross-sharing information. As a public authority, we have no problem sharing resources, information, data. And in fact, we knew going into this, if we wanted to standardize the message and get it all out there, we needed to develop the materials and freely share them. So we meet regularly with the sales and marketing team and the education team of our MRF to say, what are you seeing? What do you need? What, what can we support? They're willing to distribute the information to their customers, so there's an alignment there. The other important part was meeting with our customers. And again, Lixwama's customers are twofold. The commercial haulers who do the curbside collection of refuse and recycling, but also the municipalities who enact and enforce the ordinances and particularly the guidelines for recycling. We spent, um, we did several round tables in the summer, maybe May, June, July timeframe last year, and educating our customers who weren't familiar with the challenges of just what had happened with the national sword policy, but also the challenges that the MRF is facing and what contamination is. Spending time understanding what were their challenges going to be when they do education, what are some of the things that they are seeing, and to really build that coalition or collaboration to say, we cannot do this on our own. We would not be effective if Lakswama, if all of the message was just coming from us. We needed everyone to say the same thing. We also supported municipalities in changing the guidelines. So some of these municipalities are rather small and quite rural. They don't have the staff size to be able to make some of these administrative changes on their own. They just don't have the time for it. So we had staff dedicated to work with the municipalities to update their ordinances to update their contracts and also work with the haulers as well um, to push out that information to their customers. 
Again, providing free resources. If we expected these municipalities to develop some of this on their own, some of our haulers too, as well, our commercial hauling customers are larger, but some of them are smaller. They don't have the marketing budget. They certainly don't have an education budget to be able to develop any of the materials on their own. So we stripped the branding for our initiative, the Recycle Right Lancaster, of anything that had to do with Lixwama. It was all just Recycle Right, which afforded a hauler the ability to throw their logo on there a municipality, so that, but that people were seeing the same things in the same way. And uh, we did all of this under the umbrella of a public awareness campaign that has several components. I used our local media like it was nobody's business. If there's another takeaway, please don't be afraid of the media, television, newspaper, radio, reporters. Use them because then you get to shape the message. There is so, still in our community, there's so much information and excitement or interest around this subject. If you're not available and you're not capitalizing when that reporter calls you for whatever reason, you're missing an opportunity. They, I don't want to say they can be your friend, but they can certainly be an ally if you can help them understand. We also did a mixture of traditional advertising like billboards, print, um, newspaper ads, transit, um, radio. We also did a, a lot of digital advertising ongoing community outreach. We hired an individual solely dedicated to do education about recycling, partnering with educa um, educational institutions, K through 12, higher education. We're going out to civic groups and community groups. And then um, the lastly, developing a landing page, which um, the address is there in the lower right corner of the slide, RecycleRightLancaster.org, a series of educational videos. You could go on there later and take a look, showing people simplistically how to recycle the big four, free flyers that they can download. They can ask questions. We developed a character called Recycle and Rosie that people could email and ask their recycling questions. And it still amazes me what people ask. So to end my few minutes of time, if I can give you some key takeaways, there's five of them, that as you go back to your communities in whatever space that you represent, if you could keep these in mind, I think that they're applicable um, no matter where you're coming from and if things are a little bit different in your area, which I'm sure they are. Number one, changing behavior takes time. While there was so much energy and interest, at least in our community, around this when it first went viral, for lack of a better term, last summer, the fact is people are creatures of habit. And I said it is going to take us at least three years, if not five, until we really see that we're moving the needle when it comes to contamination. I mentioned at the beginning we did a bin audit, as we call it, um, to actually do an audit to see what our contamination rate was. We did that in October. We plan to do that annually every October for at least the next three to five years. That's one of the ways we're going to be able to see um, are our efforts making a difference. But it takes patience and it takes repetition. And many of you, I'm sure, have tried to break a habit or start a new one. And you know that maybe you're really good at it at the beginning. And then it kind of tapers off. And then you often lapse into old habits. And so that's been one of our challenges is to skip to the last one, is keeping it top of mind awareness. How do we continually keep energy and interest around this? Because news moves fast, the next shiny thing comes around. And so how do we help people understand that this is still a critical issue that we need you to pay attention? The second one is simplicity and consistency is absolutely crucial when you're talking about behavior change and you're getting people to do something different. Make it simple for them. I often say it's like hurting cattle. If you are trying to get a cow to move from point A to point B, that is how you're looking to approach the public. I know some that can seem condescending, but that's you're talking about competing interests and time and awareness for people. Make it simple and do it over and over and over and over and over again. And when you think you've saturated, do it five more times. The third one is it is so critical that the public and private sectors collaborate and work together. We so often, and, and we also do this as well, can work in our own vacuums. We need to talk to one another. You need to understand what your community leaders are interested in, what they're facing. Um, community leaders need to understand what challenges recycling processors are facing. Same thing with the collection communities. We all need to talk together and to be aligned because if you give people, if we give people mixed messages, they're going to default to what they always knew previously. 
and I think I said it before, but don't shy away from media or any PR things. While they can seem contentious, you have a real opportunity to utilize that. It's free, which is the most wonderful part. We have gotten some incredible coverage on all of our local television stations, print, and then that got picked up by the Wall Street Journal and other publications. And so um, don't shy away from it. And even if you don't have a reporter digging around, I promise you this is something that they would be interested in. And, and even if you don't represent a community, they would love to hear from a MRF or a recycling processor. They would love to see that. And it ends up being some good branding for you, too. Well, uh, Katie did such a good job uh, that I, if I screw up, Sherry's going to uh, save the stage, okay? Uh, and I have to echo, I have to echo that uh, uh, Ben, uh, uh, thanks thank for skipping lunch to uh, join the session and really admire, every, every, admire everyone too uh, for, for that. Um, I think I'm going to uh, also echo to make this a meaningful conversation and not uh, being a campaign to promote anything or selling anything or buying anything. Uh, it, so I, I, I will uh, plan to go through a few slides very quickly, save some time if, uh, if we could to grab a bite. And also, I'm happy. I'm actually uh, uh, pretty nervous at the beginning. I, I didn't. Re I was reluctant to come to join this session because it's really uh, the stage is a dangerous place. But I'm happy that uh, Katie uh, said China actually the crisis illuminated rather than uh, blame on it. So if you have any eggs, save it. Right? You, you don't have to uh, throw uh, throw at me. First of all. Uh, let me uh, introduce, a, 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 do a little bit of two minutes of a commercial about uh, wind fiber. Uh, the, uh, previously, we're known as Radins International, and it stepped down uh, as the uh, buying agent for Lian Man Wind Fiber. Uh, we rebranded re globally into uh, uh, Wind Fiber US, Wind Fiber UK, and Wind Fiber uh, Europe in uh, early 2019. Wind Fiber represents uh, Lian Man paper. We ship about 8,000 containers a month to uh, supply Liaman. If those of you are not familiar with uh, how many, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the containers, the, uh, the next slide is going to show. This is about the, uh, the size of uh, 8,000 containers. It's a 400 meter long uh, CMA vessel. If we put it together in one month, that's how many containers we ship uh, a, a, a month. <laughs> uh, Liaman Papers uh, is a major um, Manufactured paper manufacturing in China. It has uh, uh, f six mills, uh, five in China and one in in Vietnam. I know. I mean, the, I mean, in, another reason to, uh, to be a little bit uh, uh, reluctant is that uh, everybody seems to be blaming China for this uh, for this mess. And and if anyone, uh, no, no one is wanted is interested in talking about it at the moment, why would I? But I felt this is something I really think we should connect. And, and as a mill uh, buyer, as a paper buyer, I think we should, this stage would help us to uh, have a dialogue. I wanted to talk. I, we, we can share some, some ideas, and I will share uh, rather informally what I know about uh, the situation in China. So, so what I will do is uh, I'll focus on four uh, points today. It's the, well, what's the current status of imports of waste paper into, into China? Uh, the second point would be the impact on the mills in, in China. I, uh, I, I don't know all of it, but I will try my best to, uh, to share what I know from our point of view. Uh, and what, where has the paper, since the green fence, since the uh, national sword, where has the paper been going? And then lastly, I would like to share a few, uh, few, point, a few thoughts with everybody. Well, uh, we don't want to, though for, those of, for those of us who have uh, lived through this mess, we didn't really want it to relive the life. It's very painful, but for the purpose of, uh, uh, for those who, uh, for the benefit of this forum, I'd like to just uh, uh, walk through this, uh, the major events that lead to this uh, current situation. Uh, we all remember in 2016, there's uh, the uh, green fence. That was uh, very uh, harsh. But then come in the national sword announced in February 2017. In July 2017, China filed the, the notice to WTO, uh, making the uh, making the uh, known that it, uh, she's going to China is going to ban mixed paper. Uh, in 
January 1st, 2018, the uh, trade of mixed paper uh, effectively uh, will completely stop. At the same time, about the same time, China talked about revising its standards to um, much tougher than it was. At that time, everybody was hoping it's going to be 1% or the China government said 0.3, but ended up at 0.5%. Then the next uh, happened is in May 2018, there's a uh, 100% inspection. That's because China and the U.S. had a trade war. The, uh, I think it's a, um, it's a singled out uh, U.S. as a um, as a uh, country to for all the cargo shipping from the U.S. China exercised 100% inspection. There are some uh, conspiracy theories that is targeting the U.S., but actually after, uh, I, I learned later that it was really not. It's a technical issue because there had been so many shipments from the, from the U.S. that had triggered a downgrade of the CCIC status into a uh, technical area, uh, area that will uh, require the 100% inspection, but uh, to some degree, I think there's some political motivations there as well to slow down to to make it uh, uh, to uh, make it more difficult for the trade from the U.S. Then in uh, June 2018, there's a, the 100% inspection uh, of CCIC. Remember, we had some of those um, of us in the trade business had uh, enjoyed the self-inspection status, which uh, means we don't have to send somebody there to watch the loading uh, bail by bail. But uh, in June, to, uh, in, uh, from May 4th, the, uh, uh, I mean, from June 1st, CCIC had uh, said, change the policy and everybody has, all the loads have to be inspected 100%. Then came uh, August 1st, it's China's AQSIQ and customs merged. I mean, it's, it's probably nothing uh, that uh, relevant to us here, but it's a lot of uh, uh, significance in China because these two agencies in the past has been, uh, the AQSIQ has been sort of a protection for us. They're more interested in helping us, whereas customs is solely want, uh, the gatekeeper. They, they are the tougher uh, than, than EQSAQ. Then it came that August 23rd, we ha uh, there's a 25% tariff. And then there's a five rounds of uh, um, blue sky in 2018. Then uh, this year, March 22nd, we uh, know there's uh, the first round of uh, blue sky 2019. Well, uh, at this point, I think everybody has uh, agreed it's very painful for us to go through, uh, to uh, get to this point. But in China's defense, it actually has been trying to uh, make it work. It, it was difficult for them to make the decision, but they're trying to make it work. I remember they were uh, debating whether to, uh, they're trying to, to uh, debate what the standards should be used, and they come to the mills and, and ask for mills' opinions, and uh, there's a lot of voices, a lot of concerns, and, and if you look at the 1.5%, if we have been behaving at 1.5%, it really wouldn't probably get to this bad, but uh, as we all know, the contamination, I, I'm, I'm happy that Katie mentioned that the the good news that every uh, now we're more conscientious of the quality and and be conscious of the, the contamination in the in the stream, but at that time the contamination of the paper shipped was actually pretty bad. If it's uh, um, I think on average it would be between uh, you know five to if if I would say. Uh, between five and eight is our uh, the contamination that's seen at the mill. That's pretty bad. So eventually, uh, you know, enough is enough, and they took this uh, dramatic measure. Uh, of course, uh, I think it's very uh, difficult for mills to deal with, and it has real consequences. It's really not done uh, well and right in in such fashion. So that's where at least to uh, the status today. Then, what are the major issues that's facing in China? The, uh, first of all, mixed paper is banned. No one is shipping in any mixed paper. There have been some uh, uh, trying to get the mixed paper through in some other names, but in, in a larger, uh, in the most part, I think, to, up to, to at, at this point, none of the mixed paper is going to China anymore. Uh, second uh, uh, prominent feature is that it's the, the uh, uh, per permit, the quota is declining. 
and it's on the way to zero out in 2020. Uh, the, the third is 25% uh, tariff is in place. And as of uh, Friday, you can, uh, we, uh, uh, Sunday, we, we got the Twitter again, uh, probably this is going to last a little bit longer, right? If those of you follow the news, the, the, it's gonna last a little bit longer. What we're really facing is here, the enforcement. The enforcement is so strict that you can't believe it. If you go to the customs in China today, you will see a massive amount of uh, paper hanging at the terminals, at the, at the ports, because they are unloading uh, containers. They're unloading a lot of them. In some cases, uh, some ports, they're unloading 100% of the, of the containers. And, and those of you who uh, run the MRFs, you, would, you, you know, you try so hard to stuff the bales into a container. You, you, want to make the, you want to make weight. You want it to uh, reduce your cost by combining your smaller bales and the larger bales together, so it's very tight. Once you unload it, it's very, very difficult to load them back. So you see a bunch of paper hanging there in the, at the terminal. It's, it's amazing. Um, and it's, the enforcement also means another, uh, uh, it, it's different. It's new, the new era of enforcement is that uh, in, the, in the past, if you can rely on your uh, friends your, or your buddies at the customs are more, uh, I probably shouldn't say that, it's not politically correct, but I would say if, if you are, uh, if, if, if they understand you, if they understand your needs and, and they trust you, uh, you they the inspections at the customs probably are going to give it, uh, put it under better light rather than uh, uh, hold you strictly to the standards. But today, no more. The inspectors carry a camera on their shooter. It's like the cops. They are walking around with the camera on their shooter, and that uh, with a, uh, on their shooter, and that is centrally monitored. I was told there's some massive amount of data center somewhere in Shanghai or Beijing is monitored just in case if someone is not behaving, then it is they can trace it. So everybody is hush hush at the ports. They are not doing anything to facilitate smooth trade. I think it's wrong to be uh, to violate the rules, but I also think it's wrong to uh, to not to be uh, uh, to not to facilitate the trade. After all, this is a uh, raw material to uh, throw the baby, uh, you know, uh, be, uh, out of the bath water. Uh, is really not the, the purpose, right? So that's very, very uh, harsh. And another thing that probably you, you never uh, understand is the weight discrepancy. I got a call from my boss uh, in the middle of night on Christmas night and say, Byron, your, your, your shipments from, uh, from uh, Chicago, for example, is uh, 2.4 tons different than uh, in, a, in a, a shipment 400 tons. The total combined weight difference is 2.4. I mean, for God's sake, it's, a, it's a Christmas night. I didn't want to talk about this. But that's what get, what, that's what get their attention. They said, well, you are smuggling because you, 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 you want to enlarge your quota. Well, you want to uh, evade the tax. I mean, we really don't think the waste paper is that kind of a value to, for us to do any kind of a smuggling. I have seen some Playboy magazines got us in trouble, but really not the weight, right? So, I mean, it's really, it's, it's really the, the, the matter of uh, how nervous the local, uh, local officials have been in dealing with the situation. They don't want to lose their job. We understand that. And what really they couldn't do is change the system. So today, when everything arrived, it's a pre... Uh, uh, all the, the paperwork is... is uh, entered into system in advance. So if you wanted to say, let me change my manifest by the time the cargo arrives, let me go to the scale first and go, go through this. No way, you can't do that because our manifest has been done way before the cargo actually arrived. So we, we stuck. Then anything by the rule, okay, uh, anything more than 2,000 RMB, and today's exchange rate is about 6.5. Anything more than 2,000 RMB is supposed to be referred to the anti-smuggling division. 
I think their anti-smuggling division has a lot of job opening, if you're interested. So that's how tough it has been, and we're trying to advocate, and we actually, uh, I was just in China not, not that long, a few weeks ago, talking to the terminals and see if we can uh, actually change the procedure where we don't have to, to file the, manif the manifest that early. We can leave some, if we have identified the risk, we can do something else, we can do something. We can say, don't file the manifest, let us fix it. Let's go to the port and, and rescale it. And they never understood. Our, our counterparts in Europe did a better job because they probably have uh, more uniform uh, process or something. But from the US, I tried to explain to them, there are some, uh, there are some MERFs or there are some packers just don't have the truck scale or it's too far. We have the, we use backhaul. You really can't scale, uh, the, the, cap, the cabs are different. We go in with a, with a day cab, come up with a, with a sleeper. All these are, will cause the weight differences and we never really think that's a problem, but today it's really, that's the problem. So I, want, I don't want to bore you with more details. That's how, that's the enforcement that's really scary that I'm dealing with. And I talked a little uh, about permit, uh, just so that I, I, my uh, presentation looks a little bit more substantial. I want to give you some numbers here. Um, the, uh, so prior to 2016, the quota is really not an issue. It was really a general, routinely approved at uh, 50 million tons a year the quota. No one, we never really actually utilized that much. Probably uh, about 30 million tons of quota was used. As of 2018, at the beginning of the 2018, we started with that much quota. Then, little by little, uh, government uh, f f uh, asked them, if you're not using it, we, we recall the quota. So over the time, the quota was recalled. So we end up with about 28 million uh, tons quota actually utilized. It's amazing how much we actually, you know, scrambled to get everything down uh, tirelessly, sleeplessly, a couple of uh, weeks. You can imagine to, when you, toward the end of the using of the quota, you can't be more, you can't be less. It's like, it's like that precise. You have to be, you have to time it. You have to uh, control the process so well it does not get you over so that you don't, ha you don't have any quota. Your, the containers will sit there or you don't want to underutilize the quota. In 2018, because of that restriction, uh, there, uh, it, it, there's only 18 uh, million quota uh, was uh, issued. Most of it was actually utilized. Then 2019, we're looking at another 35% down year over year. So that's looking uh, pretty uh, much on track to zero out in 2020. So the impacts on, on mills in, in China, uh, first is the paper uh, uh, shortage, then uh, extreme volatility of both the raw material market and recycled paper uh, market. And we also start to see some competition from imported liner. And of course, put it together, the uh, return on investment has uh, been sharply done. Now, just so that, to highlight a few things about the capacity, uh, the uh, conflict between capacity and, and supply. You know, in, from, from 2016, there has been a lot of capacity plant. I mean, uh, in 2017, in February, uh, there was a, uh, people talking about almost 10 million tons of capacity growth. Then today, there's a, a government survey. They, there were like 40 million tons of capacity plant, but luckily, not that much. Uh, I think people are starting to cancel their projects at, at this point. On the other hand, you, we know China re almost 50% of the fiber supply rely on uh, import. And this is a big challenge, and, and uh, the, the, the semi-chemical pulp is actually not encouraged in China. So what's really, how, how to deal with the fiber supply is a, a real challenge. But another thing that's happening in China, just so that uh, for most of, of you are in the uh, recycling business I, and MRF business, I'd like to show you this chart, is that China started to modernize its collection and recovery systems. Things like this logo that Katie has shown, shown us and the, the transfer stations, the sorting stations and consolidated resource centers has been, is going on in, in China. We wanted to address the question, where did the pay, waste paper go? I mean, that's just a speculation. I really don't have any 
any, any true ideas of what's going on. I ask the same questions. I think U.S. Mills has absorbed a lot of OCC, and they also have set, it up, set up cleaning system to be able to handle more uh, mixed paper. That's from a buyer's point of view. I, I, I felt a difference before, and I felt that uh, a lot more OCC has been used, and a lot of mills are being able to use mixed paper. Then a lot of this mixed paper has been used in the U.S., in India and Southeast Asia to make recycled pulp. Even though the, the volume is not significant, the trend is tremendous, that a lot of the paper is now being made into recycled pulp. Is this gonna be a long-term solution or is it a short-term? That is uh, the jury still out, but I think we, we noticed in the last two uh, year, the uh, uh, recycled pulp has been a major phenomenon, of course. To Katie's point, a lot of that in the past has uh, being lost to the uh, landfill. Uh, just so that to echo Katie's point, point of view of hope, the hope of, uh, of recycling better, of making the, the stream cleaner so that mills will not uh, have problem with the government, the hope that uh, with the better product that we will not have another China phenomenon, and the hope is that we are able to set up shops elsewhere outside China. If you look at this uh, table, you look at uh, the ASEAN countries, uh, just by a simple tally, it's not counting all the capacities of plant. These are the 7.5 million tons I put in, I, I estimated, basically it's just for those who is gonna directly making recycled pulp or using waste paper to make liner. For those new capacity, just uh, it's already amount to 7.5 million. So there's, a, there's hope. And in general, our, uh, the uh, global demand of paper, uh, capacity is growing. I mean, there's no doubt. We're moving forward. We need paper. I think recycled paper is a part of the, the uh, key source of fiber for us. We can't give up uh, from here. Uh, just uh, the, the uh, unfortunate last year, China's uh, both production and, and consumption are down by about 10%. That's the latest data today is down by 10%, but over a longer period of time, I think it's, we are looking at a growing market and it, let's just end up, uh, end the, conference, uh, the, the uh, presentation by saying, don't give up, Katie's working on it, as a mill, we're working on it, and you're working on it, we should be able to uh, work through this, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. So uh, Cheryl's going to do her presentation now. How many of you in here represent governments? How many of you represent haulers, processors, brands? I think what we're trying to do on a national level, Katie did a great job of outlining in her presentation. That's really what EPA has been trying to lead this effort around. So I'm just going to speak to you from my heart for a couple of minutes. Recycling is not dead. China is not responsible for the challenges that we're facing today, and plastics are not evil, especially three through sevens. Some commodities that you used to get paid for, you're now having to pay for from a local government and other processing, other folks in this business. You're having challenges. We are America. We are going to overcome this, and no other country and nobody can stop us. Only we can stop us. How do we do that? We do it together. Everybody in this room has to work together, and that's what we've been trying to do over the last few months. You have the support of this administration. You have the support of the president. You have the support of Administrator Wheeler. That is why I am here today. That is why I have been traveling all over this country. I've spent a total of three days in my house this month in, in April alone because I've been talking about wasted food and I've been talking about the challenges around recycling. So you have the commitment of the federal government to help us get through this, but we have to work together. Recycling is not dead. Recycling can make you money. We have data that shows that we made 750,000, 57,000 jobs in this country around the recycling industry. $6.7 billion annually in tax revenues, and yet we threw away 
$9 billion worth of materials. Think of the money that you could have made. No offense, I have this problem with the words recycle, right? You either recycle or you put it in trash, because if you don't do it right, whatever that means, it's going in the trash. We've got to start with the consumers and stop blaming each other and stop pointing at each other. Because for the brands, they've made commitments to their consumers that they will provide more recycled content. They've made those commitments to them. For those of you in government, those consumers are your constituents. So you're all working for the same people. We are all working for the same people. We need education and outreach. We need updated infrastructure. We need solid markets. And how do we know we're making progress? We do that through effective measurement. Measurement matters. Quantity and quality matters. And that is what we're doing in this effort that we're, we're doing nationally. We're reconvening in November on National Recycles Day, but we're gonna have a Recycles Week, and we're gonna start off on November 11th with our veterans. There are jobs in the recycling world for our veterans. There are jobs in the recycling world for everyone in this country, and so my appeal to you today is for let's all work together, let's all come together, stop pointing at each other, work together, and then you can sell to China, you can sell to Japan, you can sell to Indonesia, and hopefully you will sell to people in America and have products that are bought here, used here, and made into new products right here in the United States. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Cheryl. I, I want to I want to get a flag and follow you right out of here today. That's uh, <laughs> I'm I'm ready to go. I'm I'm ready to march right along with you. Um, that, that was that was good. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times and and you've said it. and I wanted to address it here that I have been asked, "Is it the end of recycling? Is recycling dead?" Thank you for at least addressing that aspect of it. Do we have any questions? Do we have any questions? I, I got I got I got one before. I'll give it to Bill. Um, Katie, have any of your municipalities looked at going back dual stream? That was one of the conversations that we had. So the short answer to your question is no. And that was after discussing with our commercial hauling customers where all of their collection trucks and infrastructure is single stream. And so if we tried to make that decision and force our community back to dual stream while we would be more successful, perhaps from a contamination route, the fact is, is that that would not work for our commercial hauling customers. And that would um, cause quite a bit of contention. So the answer is no. Another quick one for you. Um, have any of your municipalities thought about not even collecting recyclables? Back to our, is recycling dead? Why are we doing this if we don't have markets for the material? And, and the good news, ladies and gentlemen, is the price sheet just came out. What is it now? PP&I or what, fast tracks or whatever. We've seen another decline in all the prices for fiber across the board. Another good question. So none of our municipalities have suggested elimination of recycling. While I've had some individuals give me a call and explain, well, particularly, you know, um, what's the point? That are that has been our message over and over again. Recycling is important. There's economic benefits. There's financial benefits, and there's social benefits to it. It's just that we need to do when we say right. You need to understand that it's not helpful to just put everything in the bin. There's ramifications for that. So not on a municipal level. Our community is fully behind it. What kind of inspection methods are they using at the ports uh, in China on recovered paper? Or scanners, microwave, or is it just measuring? I think uh, as far as that, uh, of course, those are restricted area. I really can't uh, walk through and see what's, what they're doing. But my understanding is that they're using the scanner for the major issues. Things like metals and uh, uh, piece of wood, they can see it. Uh, other than that, it's opening the door. If it smells, uh, they will unload it. If it's unloading, they can see. But every uh, the uh, has become more consistent. It's not as scary as was uh, a year ago. Um, it's more predictable. But today, if there's any kind of a medical waste, I keep hearing that if the there's any kind of a medical waste or bio waste, like a, a leaves, the tree trunks, they're really very careful about those. So, so basically, to, to your question is, uh, uh, technology-wise, it's X-ray. 
Then it's the visual inspection of the, uh, of the prohibitive material and the focus on uh, medical waste and bio waste. Cheryl, besides going around and not being in your house for three days out, or only three days out of the month of, of April, what other help can we as, as the consumers or the customers or the generators and the haulers and all the questions you asked us, all, uh, can we expect anything else from, from the government, both from the federal government? You know, I mean, federal government is not going to go out and build mills and they're not going to subsidize collection and they're not going to do this. And is, is there anything else that the, the, the federal government can do to help us? Thank you. So one of the questions that I get constantly is what is EPA going to do? Um, we are really trying to work with our, our municipal governments to help them have better tools in order to be able to uh, manage their recycling assets better. We recognize that they're trying to keep the police departments and the libraries and the schools and everything else in operation. And so they're not used to working in the market sector. The reality is the markets don't care that you're a public entity here to serve people. Markets go for what is the best price. And the competition is really with virgin product. So we're trying to help uh, municipalities and others learn how to be able to function in this world, but also what can saw some things that we can do to stimulate markets, to create innovative markets. So um, we are looking to... Uh, release some things in November that I can't announce here, but really some things to try to get the markets uh, stronger. But we need your help, for example. Um, in talking to Anne Germain and some others recently, we learned that people are putting dirty diapers in, and putting Christmas trees and everything else, and bowling balls. They all show up in the recycling bin. So we do have to educate our public, and we need your help around that. Um, but we also look at the brands and ask them to do better as far as how they're labeling products so that people will understand what is appropriate to put in the bin and what is not. And we're also going to try to help with the film. Uh, we recognize that that's a real challenge. For me, it's a safety issue because every time you have to break down those machines, you have lost wages, you have lost time, but it's also having a human being walk across machinery that's not designed for human feet. So it's a safety issue also. So we're really trying to bring awareness more than anything else. Hold on to that. But Congress is trying to help with a bill to create some funding in order to support some things. Okay. Hold on to that microphone, because I think I've got another question for you. The, uh, the, uh, the recycling logo that is on almost everything that's made, a lot of people see that that's chasing circle chasing on the bottom, uh, the chasing arrows on the bottom of things and think, well, that must mean it's recyclable. Right. And, and I think that that, and going back to even what Katie was saying about so, showing the picture of a piece of cardboard, not the, not the chasing arrows, is, is there any push... I know that we've talked a lot about it as an industry. Is there any, any push coming from, maybe that's the secret you can't really tell us <laughs> no, about? No, but one of the efforts uh, that we're, we're talking about in these groups, that, these work groups that I really didn't get a chance to go into, but we're really trying to do what Katie has done in, in her area, is to create some consistent messaging. And we are hoping to have a, a national ad campaign where we will come together and talk about uh, consistency about recycling. Um, when people travel, things are different. My brother and my sister, my niece live in the same county. They live about 10 miles apart, but they have two different haulers. They have two different color bins for their um, recyclables and trash. My nieces are blue for recycling, green for trash. My brother's is green for recycling, blue for trash. What do you think happens? My brother got a nasty gram because my niece put the material and what, what she does at home. So how do we get that consistency and that consistency in messaging um, is one of the things that we're working on. Uh, my question is for Cheryl. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I think uh, at the end of the day, it's the markets that will dictate. So I'm wondering why we don't look at, uh, at, the, at the federal level some uh, recycled content legislation as a requirement to help spur markets, which would create jobs locally as well. Right. So we have what is known as the Consumer Procurement Guidelines, and, um, and I'm actually responsible for those. Uh, the federal government is the largest purchaser. Uh, in the paper industry, uh, we really got a lot of momentum and movement around recycled content in paper. Uh, with the CPGs, as we affectionately call them, uh, we're really looking at how we can expand those efforts into other commodities in order to encourage. 
I, um, the federal government does not regulate uh, this this area, it is really regulated at the local and municipal and state government level. But we do try to influence it with this consume with the CPGs, and so we're really trying to uh, come up with some ways to um, ensure that people will be more inclined to uh, buy materials with recycled content because if you receive any kind of government funding, then you have to follow those CPG guidelines. So it's an indirect way of, of having that influence. Glass, how viable is glass collection at this point, especially in municipalities? One of the, the largest municipalities in the Washington, D.C. area just cut out the collection of glass, Arlington County. Is there a way that we can better collect glass and keep that as a viable recycling commodity? So we, uh, <laughs> I had somebody tell me last week that glass is making a comeback. Uh, <laughs> I have not seen any evidence of it, but glasses, I hear that glass is making a comeback. Um, it's heavy, uh, it's a contaminant, it's a challenge, it's cheap. And so all of those uh, make it more of a challenge, but uh, we are working with uh, the beverage industry um, to, to identify ways, and, and we've seen some success in the craft beer industry, for example, where they, they take their bottles back. Um, and so we are trying um, to really increase the interest in using glass, but then I had someone donate a glass crusher to uh, a major league football team, which I don't think they want to provide glass beer for them to throw down on the field. So we, we, we kind of discourage that. We're really looking for those ways that we can best use glass. Well, if I can uh, add on that, because mentioning of a glass makes me nervous. Uh, from a meal buyer's point of view, uh, the, uh, although we welcome, uh, I think recycling is a good thing, but uh, for, uh, for glass, the crushed glass to get into uh, paper making, it really mess up with the, the fine screen. So just want to add that. It's a content. And I'll just add quickly from a municipal perspective, when we were discussing revising our guidelines, we had quite a bit of discussion around glass. However, we eliminated newsprint from putting in the bin. So our instruction to our community is it is recyclable, but our MRF has a really difficult challenge pulling it out in a way that has a high quality. So our message to folks is if you want to recycle newsprint, we have a drop-off location where you can take that to keep it clean and dry. However, the reality is if we had eliminated both newsprint and glass, I think there would have been a public outcry and a complete disregard. So from our perspective, it's heavy. So from a transportation's perspective, more costly. It is certainly hard on our MRF's equipment. It is a contaminant. For us, it doesn't have any BTU value. So, you know, if it moves through our waste energy facilities, it's just a pass-through, and ultimately it goes into a landfill, there's, there's no harm for that. So for us, um, really it was just leaving it in philosophically that if it can be collected and recycled, great. Um, but we felt like there would be public outcry if we eliminated both of those. Can we give our panelists, our presenters, a fine round of applause this afternoon?